This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. Thanks very much for spending part of your day with us. Over the weekend, SpaceX became the first private company to successfully dock a spacecraft built for transporting astronauts at the International Space Station. The Crew Dragon, as the ship is called, carried about 400 pounds of supplies and an instrumented astronaut test dummy, test dummy excuse me, named Ripley after Sigourney Weaver's character from the Alien series. The spaceship also completed a stop-and-start maneuver, which showed its ability to adapt and make adjustments if problems arise. Billionaire CEO of SpaceX, Elon Musk, had this to say at the press conference with NASA after Saturday's test launch. To be frank, I'm, I'm a, a little emotionally exhausted because uh, uh, that was super stressful, but it worked so far. We have to dock the station, we have to come back, uh, but as, so far it has worked. With more on the importance of this news, we are joined on the phone by Greg Autry, who's director of the Southern California Commercial Spaceflight Initiative and vice president of space development at the National Space Society. And also joining us is uh, Ian Boyd, who is a professor of aerospace engineering and faculty director of government relations at the University of Michigan. Greg, great to catch up with you again. Ian, great to have you with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here, Dan. Thank you. Uh, so, Greg, this level of accomplishment for for this private company means what for this entire sector right now? Well, frankly, it's something that we've all been waiting for for a long time, um, and the fact that it's done now uh, means that we can move forward to the exciting part. Or actually, there's one more test, uh, a launch abort test, but we're going to move forward to actually fulfilling NASA's needs with commercial. Uh, providers from the United States, and more importantly, they're going to be able to start going after real commercial business with uh, private individuals, companies, and and other nations who have sovereign astronaut programs. And it's going to be exciting to see where the economic development outside of fulfilling NASA's needs is for these vehicles. Ian, your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think it's uh, an important step forward for, you know, the U.S. launch uh, capabilities. Um, I think one of the, you know, most important aspects is that it demonstrates, you know, a commercial company's ability to do complicated space tasks that, you know, in the past only NASA uh, had responsibility for. And so, like Greg was saying, it, you know, it opens up the uh, the commercial sector, you know, for um, for additional types of missions. So now, how how much is NASA involved in this process right now, Ian? Well, NASA is funding, um, you know, the SpaceX efforts, and there is a companion effort that's going on at Boeing uh, to essentially, you know, provide the same kind of capability. And so they they have oversight and they set, you know, requirements. Um, but the technology approaches are being, you know, figured out by uh, SpaceX in this case and, and uh, Boeing as well. I think, Greg, that this has been the expectation, and obviously we've seen it with, with other companies like Virgin Atlantic trying to do what they are doing uh, to, to get people into space or at least the first portions of space. But I think the, the mind uh, has really floated to when we are going to see 
uh, people being able to go to space and being able to be on a space station for whatever length of time that may be. And, and I think a lot of people have also expected that, at least right now, that is going to tend to to move towards people that have the means to be able to pay for that type of process. Yeah, and the first people to pay for that process is NASA. So NASA has helped fund this project and, more importantly, guaranteed to be the anchor customer. Now, after that, you've got very wealthy private individuals who could pay some tens of millions of dollars for an orbital space flight. And to be clear, this is very different than the suborbital flights that uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson are going to be offering later this year um, in the hundreds of thousands of dollars category. And then you've got these nations. Uh, think of countries like Chile or Taiwan uh, that would love to put their own astronauts up. Um, now they have a means to, to do that for their national programs. And there's been a demonstrated demand in that category, and that could uh, keep these companies busy for a while. Uh, finally, you've got to have a place for them to go. Um, you can go to the International Space Station uh, as a space tourist, and, and a, a handful of people have done that, but it's not a very practical destination, and it's not something that uh, that is easy to do with all the governments involved there. So there are a couple of companies working on commercial private space stations for the SpaceX and the Boeing and future vehicles to uh to go to with these uh, individuals and, and nationals who uh, are going to space on commercial projects. Well, Greg, with these with these other countries that you mentioned a second ago, how far along are they in their process to be able to to really step in at a moment's notice and be part of you know sending an astronaut up to up to space if they want to? Yeah, you'd be surprised. There's a lot of countries you wouldn't think of. They have an astronaut corps. Um, and they have people designated and ready to go, and they've been hoping to get seats uh, uh, on a Russian Soyuz flight uh, to go up uh, with NASA to the International Space Station. But there's a constraint uh, on the capacity of the station and on the and on the launches. So now they're ready to go. Uh, they're willing to pay. Um, I know the people that uh, work at these companies that look at market development, and uh, there's a lot of money uh, just just waiting to to be handed to them if they can. Uh, take an astronaut, like I said, from a place like Chile or United Arab Emirates to a commercial space station. They're ready to go. Yeah, Greg, I got to be honest. Uh, Chile was not uh, one of the com- uh, countries that I thought you, you would be mentioning in that in that particular group. Yeah, no, you'd be surprised. They absolutely have a uh, an astronaut corps and a person designated, and they're ready to go. And uh, Ian, it is kind of amazing that with all of the back and forth that we see in the political realm between countries, that seemingly this is one area where a lot of these countries are are able to work together at really towards a joint vision of, of where we want to go with this. Yeah, you know, I think uh, particularly you can think of our relations with Russia, where, you know, they uh, the Russian cosmonauts, you know, cohabit uh, the space station along with our U.S. astronauts and and uh, astronauts from other countries and and space has been you know um well a sort of a, a vehicle for you know international collaboration when um you know relations on the ground have have been stressed in many different ways um and the space station has been a, has been just a fantastic mission for allowing that uh, to happen um you know it's a, a conversation for another time but but yeah. you've probably also seen about you know space becoming a little bit more contested and so it will be interesting to see in the coming years how you know how if that changes at all greg yeah that's an important point and certainly there is a uh, a sense of excitement about space globally and in the commercial sector that is resulting in in what ian mentioned as as contested um there's a sense that in particular the u.s and china are an unused space race 
with an interest in grabbing uh, resources and uh, uh, perhaps even, uh, you know, essentially territory on the moon for operations there. Um, and that's exciting in the, the sense that it drives people forward. And from the American standpoint, the commercial uh, capability is really what our secret sauce and, uh, and advantage is over all the other countries, which are running large commercial uh, space programs and suddenly trying to catch up with the idea of, of having a commercial space sector. Greg, how important do you think this was for, for Elon Musk himself? Because obviously, Mr. Musk has had quite a, I'd say, a tough last several months uh, with going back and forth with uh, various agencies of U.S. government, uh, not obviously over space, SpaceX, but uh, other entities of, of his business dealings. But but I would think that where we are right now with commercial spaceflight, this has to be a huge step for him personally. It is. And, and to be fair, uh, you know, you're obviously referring to some of the things going on at Tesla yeah. and the SEC, but... He has also had uh, definitely a little bit of a battle getting commercial crew forward. Um, the commercial crew program uh, was started under the Obama administration as a follow-on to the very successful COTS cargo program that started under Bush and completed under Obama. Um, but the Congress, in particular uh, the Senate, uh, cut cut the funding for commercial crew repeatedly, and, and the companies that were in that program had to... Uh, to fight to get it done. Uh, there was a down select and one of the companies was, was removed from the program and it, it wasn't an entirely safe ride. So it's taken longer technically than these companies would have liked, but politically they faced a lot. There was opposition to SpaceX's fueling system and some of the other innovative and different things that they've done from uh, some folks on the safety review board, the ASAP at NASA, and they, they had to, to prove a lot of stuff to folks to uh, to get to this point. So I think Ian, Elon's got to be really excited and, and relieved uh, to see how very beautifully this went. Um, and hopefully the reentry, which he says is his biggest concern, will go great and uh, we'll be ready for one more test. And then uh, I hope to be in Florida this summer uh, and, and see the first Americans fly off. Uh, on this vehicle. And that was going to be my next question about the reentry, because I would think that that is almost as important as actually reaching the, the space station itself. Well, it's an end-to-end mission, right? You, Of course, it's not enough to just uh, to safely deliver uh, the people up there. You have to bring people back as well. And, you know, SpaceX has been flying uh, cargo capsules up to the space station now for quite a while and has been quite successful. But But this last, I mean, this current mission you know, has tested, um, you know, has introduced new challenges, some of which Greg alluded to, which is when you're pl- flying people, you know, the stakes are obviously much, much higher than cargo, and that applies to every phase of the mission. So, yes, you know, the, the reentry is going to be a key challenge coming up in a, in a few days. Um, you know, again, cargo that you're, that you're bringing back from space station can handle much higher levels of G-forces and things like that than, than people can. So there are, you know, there are, there are additional layers um, of, of capability that are required when, when you're flying people to space. Back. But, 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 Greg, does that change the dynamic technically as to what Elon Musk and SpaceX have done up to this point? And I would imagine working with NASA, there's obviously a, a sharing of information on what they know about reentry for human beings uh, from the space shuttle program. 
Uh, well, actually, this is probably more akin to what they know about reentry from uh, the Apollo and the earlier capsule program. Okay. Um, the way the way that the vehicle shaped and the ablative nature of the material on the the bottom of the capsule. This is all very actually 1970s NASA technology with a. Uh, a little bit of spin uh, improvement, actually. But the back and forth between NASA and SpaceX and Boeing has been really huge. There's no way that uh, SpaceX could have done this without all the help from NASA, uh, both monetarily and, and technically. And, and they know that, and Elon's you know, mentioned that several times. But on the other hand, they have improved things. Uh, SpaceX took the PICA shielding material that NASA had developed for these capsules and improved it to a new type called PICA-X. And uh, it's a it's a positive back and forth uh, uh, feedback loop between the government and the companies, which is I think rare in our our country today. And it's a it's a model for uh, government uh, public private partnership. And it was mentioned earlier about uh, obviously Boeing also uh, being in in this type of of sector as well. But I mentioned Virgin Galactic before, and and then there's also Blue Origin as well, and and other entities also. What does this mean? The success of SpaceX mean for those other companies, the ones that, and obviously Virgin Galactic, we've we've seen a lot of video about what they have tried to do. What does this mean for those companies moving forward? Do you think? Yeah, I think collectively it it raises you know uh, confidence that, um, as I said before, that that these missions and tasks that that you know up until now have been undertaken by you know national governments, including ours, but also around the world. Um, that commercial companies are capable um, of performing these missions and that, you know, well, I guess investors but also customers can have confidence um, that uh, they're going to succeed. And I think that's, you know, you, you, you asked uh, Greg about what this means for Elon Musk, and I think that, you know, it's really vindication of, of, of his ambitious approach to disrupting the space launch industry, that there have been lots of doubts at every step uh, along the way and, and his journey, and so far, you know, they've they've delivered uh, very impressively. Um, you know, the the big challenge still out there that they want to take on is taking people to Mars, and I think that's a that's a very very big challenge. Um, but but I think the the whole commercial sector, you know, will gain in confidence um, uh, through you know through their uh, collective achievements. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio one thirty two, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney twenty one. You know, Greg, uh, I, I understand you're chairing a conference in June involving space travel and development. How does this news fit into that uh, th- that conference that you'll be doing? Well, this is fantastic. So uh, I'm chairing the National Space Society's International Space Development Conference. Um, NSS is kind of the big grassroots organization for space advocacy, and the ISDCs are our big annual event. It'll be in Washington, D.C. this year, um, June 5th through 9th. And what I'm really excited about is we, we've got an incredible lineup of speakers from government and from commercial. And I think this and uh, the second Falcon Heavy launch, and hopefully right about that time, we're going to see the, the SpaceX launch abort test, which is their, their last and final test on commercial crew, uh, is going to energize uh, What's going on at our conference? Uh, we'll have NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. Uh, we'll have uh, Buzz Aldrin and Al Warden from the Apollo program and uh, an incredible group of, of folks uh, from the commercial industry. When you you mentioned Buzz Aldrin, ha- has there been, and I don't know how much you've had the opportunity to talk to him or hear him talk about this part of 
of spaceflight development. Obviously, he was involved in the industry in a time where it truly was government run, mm-hmm. top to bottom. But what are his yeah. thoughts on, on, on this type of process moving forward in space development? Yeah, actually, I sat with uh, Buzz for a couple of days waiting for a SpaceX launch at, uh, at KSC as part of the VIP group when I was the uh, White House liaison to NASA um, in 2017. And, and Buzz loves nothing more than uh, the diversity and excitement of what's happening in, in space. He's, you know, got SpaceX T-shirts on uh, <laughs> half the time I see him. Uh, he, he is a huge fan of anything that gets us forward, as he says, to get our butts on Mars. Uh, he's got some really interesting ideas himself, and most people don't realize how incredibly brilliant that man is as an engineer. He's a, uh, a, a PhD from MIT and developed a technology called the Aldrin Cycler, which is a, a low-powered way to, to get people and, and materials uh, uh, on this long journey between the, the planets. Um, and he's been advocating for that, uh, and he is actively involved even at uh, age 89. So and Mars is obviously one of the the, the ideas on a lot of people's uh, uh, plate at this point, Greg. But I guess my question is, where is that in the process of, of moving this forward? Because obviously we want to you know, have people going to the International Space Station. I'm wondering, uh, you know, uh, does the moon become a, a, a piece to this process again, sending people back? to the moon trying to develop something on the moon surface? Yeah, when I was on the uh, NASA transition team for the, the incoming administration, we had to look at what the NASA's agency's major goals were, and then we really reached the conclusion that moon needed to be uh, needed to be the goal, and that has been the, the stated policy of this administration is, is to return to the moon to stay. That's the theme of the conference I'm hosting uh, in June, and uh, everybody's on board with that. Uh, Elon wants to go to Mars, but he understands the uh, the advantage of testing technologies and getting things done on on the moon as a step there. Uh, Jeff Bezos from uh, Blue Origin is is very excited about that process, and there's a dozen small companies uh, preparing small landers and support uh, for the lunar uh, expedition uh, as a step to Mars. Uh, that's not going to delay Elon going to Mars, so he's he's going. Ian, how important do you see this process as a whole? I mean, obviously Mars being the end goal, but you know, being able to do something and develop something on the moon surface. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there are you know certainly additional challenges in getting to uh, Mars uh, that are not faced, uh, uh, you know, in going back to the moon. And and establishing a more permanent presence there, you know, including uh, you know mining and other um, you know sort of in situ resource collection. So I think that's absolutely the right thing. It's, it's, it's it, of course you know there's the question about the fact that we've been to the moon uh, before, and so maybe it's not as exciting as Mars, but it's absolutely a necessary next step in terms of uh, the technology development, like Greg said. And there's enough challenges in making that happen. And, and, and I think also it's the opportunity to, to grow this paradigm shift sort of represented by what we're talking about today where, um, you know, space uh, exploration is really going to be built more in the future on, you know, commercial partnership rather than just fully, you know, government funded. I just think we do not have um, the resources to do that and, or, or the will right now. And and this is the only way, you know, that, that we're going to make that kind of progress. So then, then what does that mean for NASA long term, do you think, Ian? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, certainly, you know, NASA has many missions and, and people say that, you know, the, the, the rise of commercial launch capability, you know, will allow NASA to, to, to focus on some of its other more core missions like, you know, space science and Earth observation 
and 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 the payload end of the mission rather than you know the infrastructure and and the capability to to get you where you want to explore so i think in long term it, it it's it's a great uh movement uh for nasa and for the country greg your thoughts yeah um if you think about say if the national space science foundation wanted to fund research into some animal in Patagonia, um, you know, they wouldn't build a ship to send their researchers there and then build a rover to send them over to go, uh, you know, find out where these these critters lived. Uh, they would contract for commercial services to fly people to Buenos Aires and, and rent a car. Um, and NASA is moving to the same model. We're going to get a lot more science done. Um, I was having a, a short meeting with Thomas Zubrek and the head of NASA Science Mission Develop uh, Directorate a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, he's really excited about what's going on on the moon with the commercial vendors because he's going to be able to deliver an incredible number of science payloads uh, uh, and not have to worry about uh, the technology development being managed by, by the government. Uh, the government's going to be able to go push the envelope uh, and work on things that are too risky uh, for a private company to, to take on. But for, for things like this, um, they're just going to get a lot more bang for their buck, and, and, and that's great for the taxpayers and, and for science. So the, then with w- what we've learned with all of the different uh, missions that have that have come from NASA, Greg, and, and now that we're starting to, to have this commercial industry move forward, how realistic, for those people that maybe don't follow it closely, how realistic is it that we could see a moon that is inhabited at some point in the next, I don't know, 50 years or so? Well, we'd be really disappointed uh, in our, our NASA agency review team if that moon isn't permanently habited in uh, five to ten years. Wow, that um, fast. So, yeah, and, and, and uh, like I said, the theme of my conference is back to the moon to stay. So we expect to see boots on the moon in the early 2020s, and we expect people to stay there. This is not a plan to flag and go home. We've been there, done that. There would be no reason to spend U.S. taxpayer dollars on that. We need to go because we're going to take advantage of the lunar resources, uh, and we're going to take advantage of, of full-time uh, occupation on the moon to do uh, to do science and the other other missions that NASA wants to achieve. So now, soon. Ian, your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's uh, largely true. Uh, you know, I'd maybe be a little bit more conservative as uh, as uh, an engineer, but I think that it's um, it's really mostly about the will to do it. You know, and uh, the political will and and and. Um, the commercial, you know, involvement again, I think, uh, provides uh, an impetus to uh, generating that will. I think if it was just purely all government, I, I would be much more skeptical. But 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 the the combination, uh, just like it says, the private-public par- partnership is, is a perfect way forward uh, for for these missions. Gentlemen, great to yeah, have you with. Oh, go ahead, Greg. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Let us not forget it was. Uh, eight years between when uh, JFK stood up and made his moon speech at, yeah. at Rice and uh, and people landed on the moon. And if we can't do that again in eight years, then uh, then it's a it's a real problem. But we're going to do it. Greg, Ian, thanks very much for your time, both of you. All the best. Thanks, Dan. All the best. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.